This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's dedicated books and comic show i am your host for the last time matthew rushing and with me as they will be and have been for so long and will be with you for eternity or or at least until they decide it's time to leave uh the one, the only, the amazing Dan Gunther, Bruce Gibson. How are you, gentlemen? Ah, sad. Very sad. It's Say it ain't so. Uh, man, end of an era. Honestly, like, uh, last episode with Matt Rushing. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and at the same time, just, just sad. I'm... I'm not as sad. <laughs> well, thanks, Bruce. <laughs> wow. No, wait. Uh, I, I I'm going to go that. Um, only because <laughs> staying in front of cars, in front of the road. So only you know. because that's just thrown down his microphone and walked off. Now I guess that's yeah. it. We're done. Okay. <laughs> like George Costanza, I'm out. <laughs> well, it's because I talk to you practically every day, and I know that's not that going to change. And that you're still going to come on the show quite often. So I don't. Feel, I just feel like it's almost like. You're just not going to stop by maybe all the time. You know, we still we still have you around. You know, I feel like um, there is there's just one thing that really sums up uh, this whole experience. And and uh, it's it's from Star Trek Enterprise. It's been a long road getting from there to here. It's been, it's a, been long a long time, time but, my, but time my time is, is finally near. <laughs> Okay, we'll stop now. But uh, no, really, it's ah, God. I can't. You know, this show, it it it's everything in, in the sense of, of where I started in podcasting, and to think that it's been over five years doing this is, I, uh, my whole life has changed in so many ways in those five years, and and part of that has been the incredible community that I found through podcasting, uh, meeting new people every year. You know, Dan, you, and then Bruce, and so many others that have come into my life because of this show and so many others, the incredible authors that I've met. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much to everyone who has listened and made this show a success. Uh, and most of all, to the authors for supporting this show. And I know I've said that a million times, but I'll continue to say it, uh, even as you guys take over the show, because it's the thing that makes this show special. 
I mean, we can talk about books till we're blue in the face, but to actually have the creator of the book come on and, and talk to us about their process and why they chose certain things and all that is just phenomenal. And it's been wonderful to have met them all. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to, to be on, you know, different shows throughout the years with them again. But I just wanted to take the moment to say, you know, honestly, truthfully, it is no lie when I say this show would have been nothing without their involvement. Uh, it just wouldn't have been the same. So I'm just honored to have been a part of it. Uh, I'm honored that Chris Jones took a chance on an unknown kid back in the day. And uh, we did this show together. And it was just a wonderful experience. Has been a wonderful experience. And uh, I can't wait to finally get to listen to the show. Um, I'll still be editing uh, the guys. So I'll get to hear it. But I won't know what's coming up. So that's going to actually be pretty fun. So I'm, I'm really excited. It seems like... This is just the way it should end, but we have a jam-packed show for you tonight. I mean, literally jam-packed. Uh, I We couldn't even fit any more news topics because we normally in our outline, we have spot, five spots for news topics. All full tonight, and it's, apparently they just knew it was my last show. So uh, we've got a couple brand new comics to talk about tonight. Uh, and the, the first one we're going to start with actually came out last week. We wanted to wait for Bruce to be here to actually be able to talk about him with him. And it's the new Visions, number 13. I don't know. Unlucky number 13? What did you guys think of this one? Well, this one, I, it, it's kind of, to me, continuing the upward trend a little bit of these as far as, as uh, the look goes. Anyway, I feel like it's getting a little better. It's getting a little more consistent. Uh, you're able to, with this story with the masks have a more uniform look that actually kind of serves the story. So you kind of save on having to take photos of people there. So yeah, this, this was an okay story for me, a little bit uh, heavy handed with the message maybe in my opinion. And if you juxtapose it with the story we're going to be talking about in the feature, man, prime directive stuff, the Star Trek just can't make up on its mind and whether that's really important or really not that important. <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the thoughts I had because it's, I don't know if the prime directive was served correctly in this case. Um, I would say no without going too much into it. I think a speech by Kirk to change a whole society is not the way to go. Whether we think what society needs to change to is right or wrong. But uh, outside of that, uh, the visual panels the way they're constructed look good it looks like it just came right out of an episode it was it felt like an original series episode it, it was it was entertaining i enjoyed it it wasn't real original story but the masks did remind me of the breen i thought this is like is this the breen society that uh do they develop into the breen society since they all wear masks and they never show their faces oh that's actually a good thought mm -hmm, absolutely um, Dan, you're right in saying, I think, completely, this is very heavy-handed. Uh, it, it's it's trying to feel very 60s Star Trek, uh, but at the same time, the message feels more like 21st century than 60s. So it, I don't know if, if I quite like doing a story where we're being just so heavy-handed like that because it's okay. I feel like it's okay for the 60s, you know? I don't know if we accept that kind of storytelling as much anymore. We we kind of look down on somebody just being so blatant. 
And uh, I don't know. I it was it was okay. It, it I, I feel like the thing about this comic is the artwork kind of bothered me in this one. Again, I just I wasn't enjoying the whole mask thing. And uh and maybe it's just because I wasn't really enjoying the story. I just I wasn't really into it. And it was very prime directive be damned, basically, is what they did. <laughs> and and it just didn't seem to flow at all. And like you said, Dan, what we're gonna talk about in the future, uh, where you know, that's holy writ. You know, it's it's like the I Ching, the thing you don't change in the Federation. Here it's like, this is one of those moments where Kirk, and in, in, have you ever seen the uh, the wonderful shirt from Mission Log where it's the Enterprise streaking away and there's a book floating in space and it says Prime Directive on the cover? <laughs> that is exactly uh, what this, this comic was. So, it, I mean, yeah, it is what it is. It, it's not one... I would encourage anybody to rush out and buy. So, you know, it's, it's just, eh, But it now, did there. you like the masks that the crew of the Enterprise put together? Because they look like a certain superhero from the Justice Society. <laughs> it did look like Dr. <laughs> Fate and a little bit like the Rocketeer yeah. all in one. So, yeah, you know, not bad. Uh, it, yeah, it was weird, too, because, it's like, these people are talking about, like, don't show your face, you know, like the vanity and the, oh, so bad. But then they're like wearing kind of skimpy clothes. And I was like, I, that's anyway, that's that's well, odd choice. Yeah. But, you know, different It's really odd, too, when they said there were different groups that uh, put masks on their kids when they're babies and they have to grow into it. And if their head gets too big, they die. Oh, that was awful. Yes. Mm-hmm. That, that to me felt like, you know, you get the kind of... Uh, nutcases living on compounds that <laughs> have no outside contact that, you know, kind of pop up in the news every so often and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I kind of got what they were trying to go for there, but yeah, it was a little bit, just again, a little over the top for me. Luckily, they didn't mention Kool-Aid, so, <laughs> you know. Woo. But uh, yeah, it was it was okay. Uh, we had a brand new comic, though, come out today, and we've all had a chance to dive into Boldly Go, number three, where... Resistance is futile, and the Borg continue to reign their terror threat across the, I guess, the Beta Quadrant, because they're Romulus, uh, or at least in Romulan space. So, um, what are you guys feeling about this story as we kind of get a little bit deeper into why the Borg are here, and is is it working better for you, or, or where are y'all landing on this one? Well, I'm enjoying this a little bit more uh, because it's bringing kind of more of the unique Kelvin timeline stuff into it. I kind of had a feeling last issue that it would be the Narada that drew the Borg there because it was built using Borg, te- Borg technology and, and that gets confirmed here. So, you know, it's it's not a twist that, I did, you know, we didn't really see coming, but, you know, it makes sense. It's kind of any time the Borg show up earlier in the timeline than they should, it's because of some sort of temporal shenanigans. You know, the crashed sphere in first contact led them to be an Enterprise, and, you know, a Borg-equipped Romulan mining ship that fell through a singularity and ended up in the past in a different universe brings them here, which is just, that's really weird to say out loud, actually. You know, when we came into issue one and we saw the ending of that and it hinted that the Borg are coming. We were like, oh no, you know, 
We don't want to see everything from the 24th century be shoved into the 23rd century so early, and it just seems like a cheap trick. But I think I remember even saying, if it makes sense because of something in this universe of why they have to come here, I'd be okay with it. And yeah, I thought the Narada would probably be the reason, and in this case it is, as Dan was saying. And it's like, I like that. As soon as that was revealed, I said out loud, out loud yes, this is what I want. Because really, when it comes to the Kelvin timeline, it really is a 24th century story. And the fact that this timeline only exists because of an event in the 24th century. So it makes sense that if a ship from the 24th century using Borg technology, that would create an urgency for the Borg to investigate and find out what this is. So even though it's in, happening in an earlier timeline, it makes so much sense now as to why the Borg would be there. And so that worked for me and I liked it and I'm really interested in issue four. Although speaking of 24th century stuff showing up, why do all the Romulan ships look like 24th century ships? And this has come up in previous issues too, where, where you know, Romulan ships especially look like ones we've seen on TNG and DS9 and ah uh, why why did they have to do that it it bugs me my my head cannon stuff is is really Well no they were there all along you just they just never saw them in any of the episodes of TOS that we watched hmm oh uh, they were just always cloaked on you know the fringes so we'll work I, it out this story is okay it just is uh, i don't love it I, you know, I just wish that they would have continued to explore the Kelvin timeline galaxy without going to the Borg crutch, which I find the Borg these days in a lot of storytelling for Star Trek. And the moment, spoiler alert, the very end where Spock's taken and they're turning him into a Borg, I was like, it was a facepalm moment. Just legitimately, it's a facepalm moment. Come on, guys. We've done this way too many times. And... I don't know. I just, I'm not excited about more Borg stories. So it's very frustrating uh, to, to, to see that. And I wish uh, they would, they would have just, just dive into the Kelvin timeline characters in between beyond and whatever's coming next, you know, because that's the exciting stuff. The fact that they were on different ships, you know, they're waiting for the new enterprise to be built the growth in the characters, where they're going to go, all of that kind of stuff seems so much more exciting to me. I guess it's the personal side of these characters that I want than this kind of outlandish Borg-type story that kind of feel like we've seen a little bit before. So mm -hmm. they could still surprise me, but I'm not hopeful that it'll happen. I want it to happen, but I'm not hopeful. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but... You know, I, I'm glad to hear that, that for some people, sounds like the storyline's working better, and that's great. Uh, I, I think that the problem for me also is is that what you guys said about, you know, the Narada and all that stuff, it's like, well, that's kind of a no-brainer, you know? So, like, there's no surprises here so far either, and, and that's what I would hope we would get more of in the Kelvin timeline, is just more surprises, which is why when Boldly Go started, I was like, Oh, that first issue, you crack it open, you're like, oh, this is cool, they're in like new ships, they're in different places, the crew is kind of split up a little bit, and then the board got introduced, and you're like, oh, okay. So, I, that, I don't know, just give us more original. Yeah. 
So it, let's get more original with the original series. Exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, guys? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Book cover judging is happening tonight. <laughs> That's right, everybody. Last one here, folks. And uh, it's it's a doozy. We got the brand new cover for The Long Mirage. Question, does it get the stamp of approval, gentlemen? Are you, are you sufficiently excited by this cover? I'm, oh, I feel bad because it, it feels like we've been ragging on Deep Space Nine a bit lately. And that has to continue tonight. I'm afraid this cover is, wow, just <laughs> uninspiring. Like we've got we've got Kira and Quark kind of on each half of the page, looking sad and dejected, and a planet at the bottom, and kind of this red nebula thing. I don't know this. Like if I wasn't really into Star Trek books and I saw this on the shelf, I my eyes would just slide right off of it. It is really, I hate to say it, but it is really uninspired, really blah looking. Blah blah blah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I don't I don't hate it and I don't love it. It's just it's okay. It tells me that this is a a character story of Quark and Kira. So I'm interested in reading it, knowing where we left off with these characters in Deep Space Nine. So that's what the cover tells me. But I typically prefer covers that usually are a ship or a station more than anything than character covers. I don't know why. It's just, I, I guess I just like the idea of seeing a ship and, and a planet behind it. And it just, it just, it just speaks adventure to me when there's just character faces it just seems like less adventure and more of a character piece. And that I like character stories, but uh, it's interesting, too, how Quark's ear looks like it's Kira's hair. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that, I think that's the thing here that makes this cover uninspiring is that it's uninspiring Photoshop work. Yeah. It's, it's Quark's head merged with Kira's. Like, is he her Voldemort? It's like he coming out of the back of her. That's kind of what it reminds me of is the the end of the Sorcerer's Stone. And, uh, you know, it just, it it doesn't feel artistic or exciting. And what's very frustrating is just think about the cover that we got for like Face of the Unknown or any of the Prey trilogy covers. You know, uh, those covers, I think, were really knocking it out of the park. Very exciting. I mean, even Live by the Code had this kind of enigmatic thing going on. Elusive Salvation was just crazy awesome, like out of this world kind of stuff, which is kind of cool for a Star Trek book. Uh, you know, this one, I don't know. And, and I think coupled to me with part of the blurb which is talking about how quark is looking for mourn okay so like uh and then the only really interesting part seems to be the part about kira and Altec and the fact that they fell in love in this what well, maybe called the prophet timeline when she was in the wormhole and now why are they together back on the station in real time as we'll call it so uh, you know I think all that together, and that's that's frustrating to say. Uh, it would have been much more interesting to have this 
I mean, even if you wanted Kira and Quark to be the cover, I think that's fine, you know, if they're going to be the main characters. But um, do you remember the Typhon Pack series books? I think that where they'd have kind of the faces, you know, uh, that mm. might even have been a better choice than just kind of this weird meshing of their heads. Yeah, and, so. and that's it exactly for me is I, I don't have a problem with uh, the idea that this would be a more character-based book with Kira and Quark kind of the central characters, but it's just something about the composition of this just, <laughs> oh man, it yeah it doesn't look good to me. And and that's that's it, all it is. Is that, a, is that a Q flash in the middle? Like, because that's what it reminds me of. You know how Q flashes on and off, you know, the screen? Is that a Q flash in the middle? Something like that. Know. Yeah. It, yeah. That's kind of what it looks like. I don't like. know. It also reminds me of uh, Time Lock, that novel. I was thinking that too, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But with the, that planet, there's, I, I can't tell on the left of that planet, is that a ship or something there? What is that? Or is. That's, that's the one thing that kind of draws me in is I keep trying to make out exactly what that is. And yeah, I have no idea. Um, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't tell either. Yeah, uh, who knows? Uh, hopefully the book is good. That's really all I care about. So, you know, uh, book covers aren't all. Uh, it's really what's between the cover and the back cover. So just to hope it's a great book. That's all I want, uh, especially for my love of Deep Space Nine. So something else that is really exciting, though, we got this cover for what's going to be coming free comic book day in 2017. Goodness, uh, if this doesn't get you excited... I don't know what will. I mean, I've never seen Data or Picard look so freaking jacked. I mean, wow. Yeah, no, these, uh, man, they've been lifting weights or doing something because, yeah, they are absolutely ripped. So this is pretty cool. We've got Star Trek The Next Generation Mirror Broken, uh, which looks to be a... Mirror Universe story set in the TNG time frame aboard the ISS Enterprise and Picard wanting to get his hands on the Terran Empire's newest starship, the Enterprise D. Uh, so this looks to be really cool, uh, one that I will definitely be trying to pick up. Um, and this is especially cool because uh, we have a document where we collect... Uh, book titles that we might want to explore in future episodes. And one of the ones that I just put on the other day is Diane Duane's Dark Mirror novel, which is a Mirror Universe TNG story. And this is exactly what I picture in my head. Maybe not exactly. I don't know Picard's that ripped, but <laughs> it's kind of what I picture in my head when I think of that, when I read that story. Do you remember the Gorn crisis and there was oh, yeah. that picture of Riker where he just looked like a Fabio? Like, I mean, totally. I mean, he was so that's exactly what both of them look like. And then, I mean, you know, Deanna Troy on this cover looks like the femme fatale from your dreams. Uh, and so I, I think this is such a fantastic cover. And I really like the art style that almost photorealistic paint mm -hmm. is fantastic. So I'm actually so excited to pick this up. I don't up. know why you're so excited because in this cover, Data is a Borg. And I thought you're tired of Borgs. It's a mere universe. Everything's <laughs> whack over there. I mean, come on. That, that, uh, that That's awesome. So uh, I, I just, I think this looks very exciting. It, it feels like, you know, that, that's one of the fun things about the mere universe is you can do whatever you want. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. So 
yeah, what a what a fantastic uh, and enjoyable cover they've given us, and it, it's a great tease for what's coming, and so I'm really excited for that. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you guys, we're here at the last show for, for 2016, and uh, just wanted to get your opinion on what some of the top books of the year were for you. Well, it's always kind of a great question for each year. You know, as, as far as the new releases this year, we had some really great, uh, really big uh, trilogies. We had the Legacies Trilogy and the Prey Trilogy, which were kind of showcase pieces. For me, though, and, and I, I know this is going to be an outlier pick because the opinions on this book were totally split down the middle. I really loved, and you guys are going to roll your eyes at me, uh, Deep Space Nine Force in Motion. I, I really enjoyed that book. Uh, the character exploration of Captain Maxwell. I don't know that it was my favorite book this year, but that's one that floats to the top of my mind as uh, one that I really had an enjoyable time reading. And that's not just because one of the characters was named Dr. Gunther. That's not the only reason, <laughs> but... <laughs> oh, oh, you were bought. You were bought. <laughs> no, no, no. It really, I, I really love the psychological aspects of it and kind of uh, the history of Captain Maxwell. And then also just a lot of the exploration of Nog's earlier years where they talk about his past and stuff, I thought was really, really cool. So that's one that, that pops in my mind as, as one I really enjoyed from this past year. Gosh, you know, it's the problem I always have with anything is usually the last thing I've read or watched is typically becomes my most favorite because it's more fresh in my mind. But I would say the Prey trilogy. It's so weird when he like he he's just seen dumb or dumberer and it's that's his favorite movie. It's so awkward. Oh, it's such a great movie. Um, not really. But uh, <laughs> so I love the Prey trilogy. But if I have to go back further, I would say Elusive Salvation was one I really liked uh, because it's not just your typical Star Trek story. I like the different time elements and going to the 20th century and Roberta Lincoln and, and dealing with all that. I mean, it's just it's just a fun story. So I, I don't know if that was my favorite, but that one just stands up my, out of my mind and also a pocket full of lies Voyager novel. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Pocket well, just, full of lies just steal sure. mine. That's fine, guys. It's cool. It's only my last show. Whatever. Um, no, uh, Pocket Full of Lies is the one that really stands out to me. I, I think uh, Kirsten has just so cemented herself with the, the Voyager crew and the depth at which she's writing these characters at this point. So much depth. It's, it's wonderful. And there is a sense of familiarity now but with that crew that I can't get enough of. And I want to see flow into all of the other books for all of the other crews, whether it's the Enterprise or whether it's Deep Space Nine or Titan or anything else like that. In fact, I feel like the Titan books uh, felt a little bit more like that uh, until the Titans started getting thrown around everywhere <laughs> in, the, in the galaxy, basically uh, doing everything. There has been such a singular focus and Voyager storyline telling that I think it's been fantastic. And I, I think also Christopher L. Bennett needs a, a lot, some praise too for the way he's been doing that with the Enterprise crew and his books. I think he's been doing that yes. really well. Uh, mm -hmm. Live by the Code was a little bit busy of a storyline, 
but I still am so much enjoying the characters. So I think it's fantastic. And I think we'd all call out, and I'll just be honest, the best series I've read since Destiny is the Prey trilogy. Uh, it, it's it's phenomenal. It's a, it's a great trilogy, and John Jackson Miller should be so proud of himself. And it's a wonderful, I mean, it is brash, bold as the Klingon Empire you expect it to be. Yeah, when are we going to have John yeah. on so we can talk about that? Bruce, um, <laughs> Ooh, you were here last week, and uh, we went ahead and had him on anyway. What? <laughs> yeah. We we weren't going to tell you, but then we realized this is a publicly available podcast, and uh, kind of figured you'd have yeah. found that out by now. Well, well, John told me we were going to reschedule it for another week, so he just he deceived me. He didn't want me there. That's what it was. Yeah, you've been discommendated, so he couldn't really talk to you. So. Hey, but uh, all seriousness now, uh, the comic side, I just want to shout out to Legacy of Spock series and the Manifest Destiny. Yes. Ooh, good call. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for bringing that. You're absolutely right. Uh, for comics this year, that was phenomenal. Uh, I mean, actually, some of the best comic work that I've ever read in Star Trek, I think, was the Legacy of Spock series. So... You're absolutely right. Uh, guys, if uh, people want to join us in talking about what their favorite books and comics were of the year, uh, where can they find us online? Well, one place you can definitely find us is on Twitter. You can tweet to at TrekFM. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. And while you're on Facebook, if you've got the time, you should check out the Babel Conference. That's our listeners-only group. Just go into the search field on Facebook, type B-A-B-E-L for the Babel Conference, and we'll let you right in. Uh, and you can tell us there what were your favorite books and comics of 2016. And you can keep up with what we have on our bookshelf for future episodes by joining our Goodreads group. So go over to Goodreads and look for Literary Treks and join the club and we'll let you in. And you can just follow along with us and, and read the books before we review them here on the shows. And of course, uh, if you'd uh, like to contact us email-wise, you could do that at trek.fm slash contact. Uh, just choose the show, choose Literary Treks, and that'll come to all of us, and we'll be able to respond to you in kind. You can also send us a voicemail, speedpipe.com slash trek.fm. We'd love to hear from you that way. And last but not least, you can find all of the shows here on Trek.fm at itunes.com slash trek.fm. Every single one of our shows is there. We have so much going on. And while you're there, you know, I, I'd say for us here at Literary Trek, so what we would really love for the holiday season is some star ratings and reviews. It's been a while. So help the show grow in the new year is uh, Dan and Bruce kick off with their maiden voyage together, just boldly going where, well, Chris and I have been and... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just giving you guys a hard time. We're going to repeat oh, gosh. everything I you guys I'm... have reviewed and just do it all exactly. over again. You're just, just going to start back at the beginning. Uh, no, I am, I'm so excited, and I really, I, I am asking you as just a favor to me, support them and give them some brand new star ratings and reviews to help this show continue to grow. Uh, I'd love to see it still be around another five years from now. Uh, we, I think, have created the premier place for... Star Trek books and comics, and I'm so excited to still be a part of it and supporting these guys and being on every once in a while, and it's it's going to be a blast. So um, I think it's time, guys, that you want to jump into the feature and, and talk about the Prime Directive again? 
I think it's about time. Warp Factor 5. Well, gentlemen, uh, we have come to one of the premier Star Trek books. And I'm just going to spoil it right up front and say that this really is, I think, one of the top-notch books that if, if you have people that have a list of, you know, pivotal Star Trek books that they've probably read, one of them is going to be Prime Directive by Rudith and Garfield Reese Stevens. This is... It is really Star Trek's storytelling at its finest. Uh, they are on top of their game in every single way in this book, and I'm really excited that we decided to talk about this one because I can't believe we haven't talked about it yet. Yeah, this is... um. Interestingly enough, I had never read this before, so this was my first time reading Prime Directive. What? I know, I know. It's it's one that I just never got around to. It's always been kind of floating to the top of, of lists of great Star Trek books, and, you know, I always meant to get to it someday and just never did. So, you know, thank you guys for, for putting this on the schedule and kicking me in the butt and getting me to, to read it, because, wow, what a great book. I have so many fond memories of this book because... When this book came out, I was not reading Star Trek books at the time. I was a casual Star Trek fan. And I remember uh, I had just graduated college. Yes, I'm that old. And I was with a friend of mine. She was auditioning for a theater master's program at University of Iowa. And we drove from Pennsylvania to Iowa. I went along with her. And um, I got sick on the trip. But I remember we stopped like at a Stucky's like truck stop or something. And I saw Star Trek Prime Directive audiobook on the shelf. And I just remember in my sick state of mind, just zoning in on it and just staring at it. And the whole trip, I kept thinking about that audiobook. And I was like, I really wish I would have picked it up. I really want to listen to it. And then about a year later, I started reading Star Trek books. And not only did I buy the book and read it and read it, I went back to a store and found the audio tapes, which I still have. And just last week I bought the ebook. So I have three versions of this story. That's awesome. I can't remember the first time that I read this one. I, I remember going to the library when I first really started to get into Star Trek and I realized that there are all these books. And, you know, it, one of the cool things back then was that they did Star Trek hardcover books. And those are the ones I kind of gravitated towards first. And, and this was definitely one of them. I still have a, a copy of the hardcover. And it has this amazing black cover with this uh, foily silver Enterprise swooshing out of the, you know, the cover with the really bright red, you know, prime directive Star Trek font. Uh, it, it's just, it's wonderful. It's a great cover and it, it yeah, it's kind of yeah, like that one. The audio book cover I have uh, is like that. Yeah, the other book cover uh, is actually going to be the artwork uh, for the show, the audio book cover. So, yeah, this is this is a book that caught my attention, and I remember reading it and, and it having a really big impact on me of what Star Trek books can be. And I think one of the biggest things was the Enterprise disgrace. I mean, these characters start off the story, and... It doesn't even start with you knowing that you're with an Enterprise character. But then you find out that Kirk is a world killer. What? Like, it throws you for a loop immediately. 
And then it makes you unravel that mystery the whole rest of the book. And I just think having these characters go through that, I mean, to me, this was the first time you kind of have that happen in my young experience at that point with Star Trek. So I hadn't kind of seen this happen before. And it it just kind of, the whole storyline with that, of them, you know, basically almost being discommentated from Starfleet and, and just rushed out of Starfleet because something bad happened. And nobody will tell you what that bad was until about midway through the book where you finally start getting the, the little bits of the puzzle to put together. And wow, it just, it blew my yeah, socks when, off. I didn't like that the first time I read this book back in 1990, 91, whenever I read it, because I knew it was during the five-year mission. And when I found out that they were no longer on the Enterprise... And it had been months. I thought, well, then they really didn't finish the five-year mission. There's this huge gap of them not even being there, not even out exploring strange new worlds. So that was something that actually kind of bothered me when I first read it. It didn't bother me this time. I actually enjoyed it. But I do remember looking back and thinking how I didn't think it really fit into the five-year mission. Like it should have been something that happened afterwards because I felt like the mission didn't really complete on, on the right note. Yeah, it was definitely, to me, it was an interesting uh, entry point into the story because like Matthew, you said, you're, you're, get, you're trying to guess like, well, what happened? What, what went on? Why is he being called a world killer? What could he have possibly done? And uh, the way the story reveals that was, was interesting. And I, I, I really enjoyed, you know, once we get to know that, getting, uh, getting the backstory there, just how incredibly, uh, immersive the writing is that you feel like you're right there and and i kind of want to say would this not have just made an absolutely killer movie like oh man this film would be incredible uh the visuals can can you imagine being on the bridge of the enterprise while the planet below there's missiles streaking and and a nuclear holocaust is happening and they're doing everything they can to shoot down those. Oh man, well, I'm getting ahead of I th- myself. I thought this. Wow. I, why didn't they do this with the Kelvin timeline? <laughs> Doesn't this seem like a great story for that second movie? You know, that Kirk, this is how he loses the enterprise. Like this is the story that you get instead of what they did. Like forget all that con stuff. Just do this yeah. story. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, no, I had that exact same thought for sure. Well, When I read it this time, I was thinking this would make a great uh, series finale to the original series had it gone five seasons and having today's technology would have definitely you know for visual effects would have supported but it kind of made me think that this was the original series version of all good things because it's like all good things starts off that same manner where you're like wait what's going on why you know what you know and and then we see Picard with a beard and there's different timelines and things going on and it kind of we see the the characters all in different places in the future and then we see them back and that's kind of how this felt like it was a great way like let's break them all apart and bring them back together where they belong and i thought that would be a great finale to a series i just i just kept hearing the song we're all in this together you know captain and tenille it's like I, why wouldn't that rockin'? i just yeah anyway that the thing that made this so impactful for me too was seeing the way in which you know Starfleet wasn't perfect. So the Enterprise disgrace is also kind of Starfleet's disgrace of taking the Enterprise crew and making them an example, 
even though they may or may not have done anything wrong. And it, it just the bureaucracy of Starfleet really came to roost in this book and kind of changed my perception a little bit after reading it that, you know, Starfleet isn't always going to do the right thing. And that that has a huge impact on me as a Star Trek fan reading this book. And then seeing those kind of story blinds play out in, in different series, you know, some with The Next Generation, and then, of course, definitely in Deep Space Nine, and then some of the films, I think of like Insurrection and stuff, where that really comes into play with Starfleet Command. So I, this is, it's just such good stuff. And, and for me, that whole disgrace of the Enterprise and then what's going on with Starfleet and all, it just, it had a huge impact on me as a kid reading it. And now I read the story and I'm still drawn in by the intrigue of what's happening. And, and I think that speaks to how well this story is written for the most part. You definitely learn a lot about the organization that they're a part of. And, you know, as, as evolved as we are in the future, and I know that's more of a 24th century idea than the 23rd, you know, we, people are still uh, flawed in Kirk's time, but you know, you're still told that everyone's evolved and people make good decisions based on rationality and all that sort of stuff. Just kind of see that peeled away and realize, well, no, it's an organization of people and people make mistakes. Um, it was definitely a really interesting perspective. Plus, I would I would put forward the idea that the book also takes a lot of the tropes of Star Trek that date back from the very early days, the idea of the Badmiral, for example, while, you know, it kind of came into full bloom in TNG. We had our share of bad Commodores and Admirals in the original series, and it really flips it on its head by the end, which I thought was really cool because I thought Hammersmith was totally this Badmiral and, and then they completely flipped that around and I, they were using the tropes of Star Trek against me, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, Hammersmith was actually one of my favorite characters outside of the original crew for that reason, because you didn't know what to make of him. Is he bad or is he good? You know, at times it just seems like, yeah, he's a bad moral, but then, you know, he kind of turns things around and he's actually a pretty smart guy and he's on top of it. He's got he's he's caught between what he thinks is the right thing to do and and the rules of Starfleet. And I mean, as we've been saying i mean no one's perfect in here even in our crew and having to make the decisions that they had to make did they make the right decisions or not well and it was interesting that he seems very much in line with what we'd see later in d space nine with ross you know you didn't always love his decisions but he was trying to make the best decision and then when he finally would explain himself you're like okay, I love Admiral Ross, you know? And that's how I felt about Hammersmith as well. I thought that was a really good way, like you said, Dan, just to turn things on its head. So you expect that it's going to go one way, but it goes another, and you're not expecting it because, you know, most of the time they're just bad admirals. So I, I love that. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about this is that it is one of the few times where there are a bunch of different storylines for the different characters. So you have Kirk in one area, McCoy in another, Spock in another place, and then Chekhov and Sulu in a place as well, and then Scotty. I mean, everybody's split up in these different areas, and so I, 
I was interested to find out from both of you what your favorite storylines were here and if you had any, if there were some that just didn't work as well for you. Uh, for the most part, I really enjoyed a lot of the storylines. Uh, I, To me, the most interesting was Kirk uh, meeting this uh, woman freighter captain who was wanting to be a starship captain, a captain of one of the 13 Constitution-class starships, and just didn't quite get that chance, and so had left Starfleet to command a freighter. Um, I really liked that story. I really liked her character. I thought it was an interesting juxtaposition of Kirk, like his life that might have been if he didn't get the opportunity to command the Enterprise. And then there were the doc, the Dr. McCoy storyline. I'm wondering if there was a bunch that was kind of cut out of the book because his whole black ire persona, <laughs> I just, when, when did that, okay, where did he, that come from? Okay. Interesting. I guess he's commanded a ship and is a, pretending to be a dread pirate Roberts character now, <laughs> but okay. And then, uh, the Sulu and Chekhov storyline to me, I got really tired of, I didn't like the Orions and their Russian-esque way of speaking, I guess. I, I don't know what they were going for exactly, but I, I got a little tired of that, but uh, I would have loved to have, have learned more about, uh, the character Kirk was with. Uh, that was definitely my favorite of those when they split apart. Yeah, I like the Kirk story, but it wasn't my favorite. I, I was really hoping that one of you were uh, going to speak up to your favorite and least favorite first, because I was really curious if somebody was going to mention their least favorite was the Sulu checkoff one, because that was my least favorite. I mean, there were times where I was just like, I want to get through this chapter just so I can get away from this. <laughs> I really did not care for that much at all. It's with the Orions and sometimes the Orions were a little hard to read in the way it was written. But I mean, not that that was a big complaint. It was just the whole thing. I just I just didn't get like I just didn't feel like it had really any purpose. I didn't think it was entertaining or funny or interesting. I mean, if I had I mean, I'm you know, this book is perfect almost in every way. But that storyline was the only weak part of it that really disappointed me in this book but my favorite which you didn't bring up dan was scotty that was my favorite storyline scotty and styles going at it i loved it i could hear scotty go off on styles all day long i can see him just breaking styles little baton stick any day I, I just like that i just brilliant. found scotty to be so entertaining and so defensive and just be like screw you all you now you know just going at it so that was my favorite storyline of those that we're talking about i'm right there with you the sulu and Chekhov story didn't seem to have the payoff it needed to have for the amount of time that we spent on it and then like you said dan this whole thing with dr mccoy like all of a sudden things happen very quickly where they come back together and it doesn't feel explained enough on that side. I actually don't understand what Sulu and Chekhov were doing. <laughs> right. Like, I really I was don't. you guys could tell It me. doesn't really make sense. Like, that's really their only way to get back to this planet? Like, can't they find a funny backwards-talking alien in a bar and hire a ship or something? I mean... <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously. I mean, a walking carpet? Something. Uh, you know... What I did like, and, and it's interesting, we each have favorite parts of the story. Mine was Spock and the way that Spock games the system. 
was just brilliant. I mean, he just plays everybody, and he's doing it completely the Vulcan way. And the Vulcan way is to only tell you half-truths about what he's really planning to do. So he's not lying to you, he's just not telling you everything. And he does it so masterfully in this book. I just, I really, really loved, I mean, it was, it was fantastic. And uh, there's the one scene where they come back together and he says he's happy to see everybody but McCoy and best scene in the book. I mean, it was just hands down so funny him saying, I'm, I'm really actually not happy. There's an 80, there was an 85% chance that you would return to this world. Well, I did in a month. Oh, you underestimated yes. me. That was great. Yeah. So, yes, it's so fantastic that the doctor comes back and they're talking about uh, Spock gave him like 85% chance to, to come back. And McCoy smiles and Spock, you underestimated. I'm not going to let you forget this for months, for years. I know, Doctor, which is why I'm not pleased to see you. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that was terrific. Um, there were a couple times, I do have to say, I thought that some of the focus on McCoy and Spock arguing went a little bit over the top in this book. There were just a few times I was like, okay, they're getting a little, you know, unprofessional now. But when we actually hear what they're saying and uh, the the really well-written parts are, are just hilarious. They really nail that for sure. No, I thought there were times it was maybe going a little too much, but there's a lot of Star Trek books and movies and that I feel like it sometimes gives a little too much, but it, it, it was cool. It was good. I think that's a good time to kind of jump into this idea of McCoy in the middle, like kind of being stuck in the middle and, and Admiral Hammersmith really takes McCoy to task and saying he's figured him out and, I think that was one of the most interesting storylines because I was not expecting that to happen at all, to kind of have this psychoanalyzation of McCoy in the middle of this book. Yeah, that was a really, that really jumped out to me as well um, because it is kind of a question I've asked about McCoy in the past. Like, um, for example, and, and, you know, I think one of the reasons we're doing this book is like Best Destiny, it has been uh, mentioned by the producers of the new Star Trek movies as one that they borrowed from or influenced them when they were writing the films. And I wasn't totally sure exactly what what they got from it until we got to this McCoy part. And I was thinking about the scene when McCoy's getting on the shuttle and how he hates space and, you know, and, you know, this thing could blow up and we could die and we get some strange disease and space is horrible and awful. And I'm like, well, why are you here? <laughs> you know, and I, and I love that Hammersmith kind of points that out. Like, you know, why did you join Starfleet? Like, what's what's behind all that? And it's it's a question that I've always really wondered with regards to Bones. You know, what uh, what drove him to space exactly? I mean, we know about his divorce and that sort of thing, but like, why Starfleet? Yeah, and I don't know if it was really fully answered why, uh, but this was one of my favorite scenes of the book because, because Hammersmith is calling McCoy out, and it's like you're saying, it's these things that we've wondered before. Why is he there? And, you know, Hammersmith, mentions to McCoy that 
you know, what would happen if McCoy would be like Kirk and spontaneity and just being, you know, making, you know, quick decisions and, and what if he used like logic like Spock does to make decisions and in that maybe he's too afraid to do that. And maybe, and then Hammersmith points out, he says, well, maybe he once did out of compassion, out of logic and realize it was the worst decision ever. And I thought, well, when would that have been? And then I thought about Star Trek V. You know, he let his father die. It was a medical decision, but it was also made out of compassion for his father and the suffering, and also out of the logic that there was no help for him. And I wondered if that was a call to that incident that he had. Now, this book, of course, takes place in the five-year mission, but Star Trek V, that scene that we learn about, I think takes place maybe sometime around this time or earlier or something. I'm not sure exactly where in the timeline that is, but, um, but it made me really wonder about that scene. And, and then it's pointed out that McCoy is just like Starfleet. He's in the middle. He's between a human and a Vulcan, just like Starfleet is. They're between humans and Vulcans and trying to make things work. And so really McCoy is a reflection of Starfleet in pointing out those things that seem very illogical at times and trying to do the right thing. So I, it was, it was, a, it was my favorite scene of the book. It is interesting that you bring up Star Trek five and the, the whole thing that we learn about him and his father. And I do think that may be what they're pointing out. And there is this interesting thing that McCoy is the one that stuck in the middle with Kirk and Spock, you know, and it is, I mean, and you can, it, what's, what's great about that, trio is that you could put all of them in the middle at certain times you know to be stuck between the others and I think that's what's great is that here McCoy is really that one who is kind of stuck in the middle in this book between the two but I also think that it seems to me that McCoy joined Starfleet out of a lot of different things that happened with you know obviously his his marriage and then probably what would happen with his father and I think that it's Spock and, he, well, he wouldn't want to say that, but it's Spock and Kirk that kind of saved him. You know, that, that found a way to make him okay with who he is. You know? And, and I think that's the interesting thing about the story. And I kind of wish that they had pushed that a little bit farther here and, and really drilled down for an answer the conversation just kind of ends and you're kind of left to just ponder it. But I really think they could have hammered it out just a little <laughs> hammered it out a little bit more. <laughs> and it would have been something really cool to come to uh, almost an epiphany about McCoy as a character, but they don't quite get there. In it, and that's kind of frustrating. Yeah, it's, for me. It, I think you're right. And it's, he's, he joined Starfleet because he's running away from something. And he may not have stayed in Starfleet, but he found Kirk and Spock and the rest of their crew. And so he kind of he found his place. He found his family. Whether he wants to be there or not, he found the people he wants to be with. Which kind of points to another part of Star Trek V. One, one part that I really liked when McCoy's talking about all that time in space getting on each other's nerves. And then shore leave comes around and what do we do? We spend it together. You know, other people have families and... Kirk says, other people, Bones, not us. I, 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 lo I love that. And yeah, they really are each other's family. Well, and I think, I mean, 
just to go on a tangent for a second, I think that's the strength of Star Trek V is I really do feel like Shatner understood the characters in a lot of ways and, and those relationships, especially between those three. And that's what plays so well in that film. And, and I think that's what's really interesting here. What's also very cool is watching how, you know, we talked about those different storylines. Kirk and Spock and Bones are all kind of pursuing the same goal almost independently and yet still coming back to the same place and all working back together. It's great. I, I think this story works on so many different levels and I really love it. Um, I wanted to ask you because when we find out what the catastrophe is, it, this gets fascinating, uh, you know, and it made me ask the question of why Starfleet was so quick to just say, oh, well, you guys, you know, totally effed that up. See ya. You know, like it, it was kind of strange to me that they don't study it more automatically because it would seem like you'd want to know what happened. And they don't even wait for all of the evidence to be there. You know, as Scotty says to Hammersmith, you know, things that we're finding out now are only happening because, you know, we've, we've done this, that, and the other thing on the ship. And it just seemed very strange to me. So how, how did you guys take that? You know, I wonder, <clears throat> in the Gold Key comic we talked about a little while ago, they had the PR officer. I'm wondering if they kind of were like, oh, Starfleet, you just got to bury this. You know, it's bad for public relations. A planet's been destroyed. Just, you know. I mean, it's trending on Twitter and not in a good way. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I think what happened here is is what happens a lot in real life. You know, you've got to blame someone. So uh, let's blame them, say it was all their fault. And then, then, then it's swept under the rug. Then it's, okay, now we're past this and we're moving on kind of thing. Whereas, you know, things in real life and in the story don't work like that. You know, there are very complex things going on that you can't just say, oh, it was this, therefore this. And, uh, you know, it really does take some reflection and some investigation to get to the bottom of that. And there was a there were a bunch of little things in this story that I thought were really strange that I thought they would kind of dig a little bit more into. Like, for example, the first contact team being so blasé about a lot of the stuff. It's like, how many people have seen you? Uh, about nine. You know, and, and how... I mean, we just flashy-thinged them. So yeah, they're fine. They, they cool. forget, we're pretty sure. Um, you know, and, and, you know, you juxtapose that with how absolutely careful Kirk talks about that they have to be when it comes to the prime directive. And when it all comes down to it, they get the blame and the first contact team, you know, doesn't. Like, it was just, it was, it, it was really... It, it seemed eerily familiar to situations that happen in real life where, you know, you get this idea in your head that, well, if we have this scapegoat and we pin all the blame on them, fire them, and then move on. In a lot of ways, it doesn't paint the Federation Starfleet in a good light. Um, I It did seem too convenient, too easy to blame Kirk and the crew. They they named the planet Kirk's World. People called them planet killers. And I just didn't feel like that was... I mean, obviously it wasn't fair, but it just... 
it seemed more like the first contact crew was the one who really screwed things up and and the enterprise was there just trying to correct things so i didn't i didn't like the fact that they were getting a free pass the first contact crew and kirk and crew were being called planet killers it just it just seemed a little little too accepting to just point the finger so quickly and everybody just accepts that and i I just think it should have been a little more explored or maybe explain more detail as to maybe a conspiracy of the of some of the Federation trying to blame Kirk. I don't know. Um, but it definitely put us in the storyline setting here to to get this 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 story going. So I don't know. It uh, I kind of agree with you guys on that. It just it just didn't seem right. How dare they? It was, and I, I like your explanation, Dan, of the idea that it's just kind of real life, you know, uh, something like this happens, you you blame the easiest person to blame because you want to just get it out of the media, basically. You just want the story to be done. But don't you want Starfleet and the Federation and this, you know, to be better than that? I'm, I'm tired of them being like a bunch of jerks. <laughs> and I do, I, I think I think you're right in that sense, but I also feel like, they do a good job of showing that it's not all of Starfleet because, again, Hammersmith becomes a character that we can rely on and actually wants to get to the bottom of this, especially when Scotty comes to him says, hey, what we thought happened ain't what happened. And give me, you know, as much time as you can, I'll, I'll, I'll help you prove it. And then they all do, and I thought that was really fantastic. Quickly on that, did you like what it was that happened, that it's just this basically instinctual alien species that kind of goes from, I mean, they're like the plague of locusts going from planet to planet, harvesting it and then just leaving. I feel like story-wise it was a little convenient. Uh, however, I, I did find it really fascinating, the mechanics of how they worked. Uh, this idea of just through instinct stoking the fires of, uh, of passions and creating nuclear holocaust when they detect that a world's been experimenting with uh nuclear weapons as just it was really fascinating fascinating to me and the idea that this creature has survived I'm, I'm i can't quite remember how they determined this but that it had survived through at least one big bang like from one universe to the other i, I just really fascinating and uh, I thought that maybe they would go down the route of like, oh, this is why Earth came so close to nuclear annihilation. But they, they didn't go there, which I'm kind of kind of glad about, I guess. But it was a, it was a really interesting idea for sure. And one that that definitely had me thinking after long after I'd put the book down. It was unique, in my opinion. I would I didn't remember that when I first read it years ago. So I couldn't remember exactly how it ended. So. The fact, like you said, it survived a big bang and and uh, it's evolved into maybe even something else and it all operates on instinct and it's got these locust bug-like creatures that are helping it. And again, just based on instinct and they're not purposely trying to do something and they communicate through radio frequencies and that's how they can determine whether a planet is actually getting ready to blow itself up with nuclear weapons because the radio communication that's going on. And it's, it's different. It, it, it was a little weird, which I kind of liked about it because a lot of this story 
is very much Star Trek and, and a combination of things we've seen before. And so this is a really big twist on an alien race or entity that we hadn't seen in the original series. Well, this book obviously deals with something that we talk a lot about, and that's the Prime Directive. And I thought that this book does a very good job of explaining and showing why this is not something that's morally indefensible and should be stricken from the laws of the Federation. Because it's not our job to go out there and play God. And the moment that you take away a society or an entire planet's lessons, you hurt them. The same way raising children. You know, if you don't let your kids fall off their bike, they're not really going to learn how dangerous it can be to take it seriously. You know, if you don't, you know, all those lessons that, you know, kids need to learn to understand about the way the world works, you know, you don't let your kid uh, learn that it, there's a winner and a loser in a board game. No, not everybody wins, you know, same thing with, you know, a soccer game or whatever, you know, those lessons that are so important for us to learn so that we can grow and continue to mature as people and then, of course, a species, that's the whole thing about the Prime Directive um, is that if you come in and take that away from a race, you're taking away something that is critical to them being able to handle the next level of power, you know, whether it's warp power, going to other planets, all this stuff. So I, I really like the way that the book deals with the idea of the Prime Directive. And I, I think they do a good job of showing that it's not just black and white, the Prime Directive. There is some gray in there, you know, to be able to do the things that you need to do. Uh, to help a planet that might be on just on the cusp, you know, of of that level. But I just I thought it was it was really well done. Well, let me s throw some gray at you then, because you're saying about not interfering, uh, because you know the society, the planet needs to accomplish their own development and create their own warp drive on their own. But here's a planet that we knew with certainty that they were going to annihilate themselves within three days. So there was no future. So, and I think this is one of the questions that has come up in this book is, do you step in knowing that they're not going to be around anymore and step in and show them the errors of their ways so that they do have a future or is that too dangerous? It's definitely an interesting question. And I did really like, the idea that it was pointed out that possibly if that first accidental nuclear exchange had been allowed to happen, that might scare a society into never using them again kind of thing. Uh, whereas, you know, the Enterprise stepped in and, and stopped that from happening, even though that wasn't the case with this society. It was an outside force acting on them. I thought that was a really interesting argument that I hadn't thought of. So... You know, you can never really know, I don't think, with a certainty that a race is going to 
annihilate themselves. Whether it's right or wrong to step in, I I honestly, I don't know. Like, that's a really tough question. I think whichever way we as a society, if we ever get to this point and have to make those decisions, both sides of that argument are going to have a hard time sleeping at night, whatever they decide. And one thing I do have to say about this book that I really loved was getting some perspectives outside of Starfleet. So the idea that there are student groups that protest the Prime Directive, I just thought was really cool. You know, a lot of times we we don't think of those real world perspectives and, you know, what three guys sitting around talking like we are about the current goings on in Starfleet might be thinking about what this news bulletin that came in about what happened about this planet that the Enterprise was at last week. Uh, I don't know. It's really fascinating. And I can't come to any conclusions because that is one of the toughest uh, questions Star Trek ever has to deal with. Well, I think it's interesting, though, because, you know, Spock says in the book it, with that student group that he's used to be able to get his time in front of the Federation Council that not only is the prime directed needed, but it should continue to become stronger and stronger as a principle as as Starfleet and the Federation continue. And kind of debunking their whole idea that they think it's just to, to protect the Federation world and keep us rich, you know, as if you, you live in a society where you can put food into a synthesizer thing and it just pops out food for you. I mean, it's, you know... The idea of being rich at that point when all your material needs are taken care of for every member world, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, that your argument's kind of invalid. Their point for the, and I really love that they, they make this over and over again, the point of the Prime Directive is we can't be the ones to make those decisions. They have to make those decisions for themselves. Because the only true decisions you ever make in your life are the ones that you make for yourself. Whether it's, I mean, any decision you make, uh, you, you, you need to have it made yourself because that's where it really takes root in you. Whether it's what you believe about God, you know, and religion, what, you know, all of those kind of decisions are the ones that you finally make for yourself and choose for yourself. And those can be, and mainly those happen because of the different circumstances if you're in your life. If you're shielded from, the bad things or from different opinions or all of those kind of things to challenge you, it, it takes away from the ability to make the most informed, best decision, even if that means you have to make a mistake, you know? And so um, I, this book, it does, it really does, I think, good job of talking about those issues but I think then talking about, you know, why they are important, uh, especially in the framework of Star Trek, uh, I just, I loved it. I, I just really love this book. And so I guess in the end, you know, if you guys had to rate Prime Directive, I don't know. What do you think, Bruce? You know, if it wasn't for the Sulu and Chekhov <laughs> scenes you were talking about earlier, I would probably give it five out of five. But, uh... It's so strong everywhere else, and it's such a perfect Star Trek book and story, to the point that when I was reading it, I thought, 
if if somebody came to me and they said, you know, I've, I I like Star Trek. I, I've watched the original series, and you know, I've never read a book. What would you recommend? I think I this would be the one. This would be the one that I would say that is a good starting point because it's just it, it hits all the elements, and the Prime Directive is just woven through all of Star Trek. And so, what a perfect story then to focus on the Prime Directive with these characters. So I would say I would give it four. Point seven five out of five. Yeah, that's a pretty good rating for sure. Uh, I I have to agree. I think with uh, almost everything you said, you know, if you were just coming to Star Trek and maybe had watched a couple episodes, but were like, you know, I really want to check out a book. This one, like you said, it's got so many elements of Star Trek in it. You can read this and know the strong relationship between Kirk, Spock, and Bones. Uh, the the camaraderie of this crew and what it means to be a captain of a starship and to serve on the Enterprise. Uh, I love when Scotty's gathering all the old crew together, <laughs> and like so much of that is is so integral to what Star Trek is. Um, not to mention, you know, the great philosophical debate that we could sit here and honestly probably have for about five more hours if we wanted to. Uh, it 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 really is a great book. A couple of of things in it, like you said, pull it down a little bit, but I I'm right there with you. Somewhere between four point five and five, slingshotted, removed warp nacelles. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a really really strong book though. I really really enjoyed this. I'm I'm right there with both of you. Uh, this book is is wonderful, and I'm glad that uh, we're wrapping up the year with it. And I think everybody should read it. No, it, it's definitely four out of five really bad Chekhov and Sulu storylines. Uh, so <laughs> go check it out. Do yourself a favor here over the holiday break that hopefully you have. Read Prime Directive. Well, definitely a classic in the Star Trek liter- literature universe. Uh, I think we all definitely enjoyed Prime Directive. And Speaking as someone who read it for the first time, you know, now I know what everyone's talking about. Feels like the first time. <laughs> Feels like the very first you're time. Going, you're going for a record this episode, aren't you, Matt? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember Matt telling me that, you know, he's, I can't believe we haven't done this one. We, we got to do it. And he's like, I want to do this on my last show. And I thought that it was so perfect. That this is the book that he's going out with. And uh, again, just to bring this back around to it, you know, being your last show, Matthew, at least as, you know, a host, I, I really appreciate everything you've done with the show. I've, I've been a fan of the show since the first episode dropped. And with you and Chris, I, I really appreciate you both doing this and then inviting me to join. And, and I was thrilled when Dan came on board. It's just, I mean, this has been a great show, and I'm not saying that because now I'm on here, but I mean, I've, I've, I'm a fan, and I don't really even like to hear myself talk. Um, so, you know, um, I'm just looking forward to having you back as often as we can. Yeah, and I, I definitely have to second all of that. Um, I, I remember when you first brought me on a few times as a guest, I was just absolutely thrilled because like Bruce, I was a fan, you know, I was listening to literary treks since episode one and I never thought I'd get the opportunity to actually be on the show, let alone as one of the permanent co-hosts. And, uh, you know, 
listening along to you and Chris for all of those episodes, uh, it's it's really hard for me to believe that you're stepping away uh, as as one of the permanent co-hosts, and uh, you will definitely definitely be missed. And I really appreciate all of the opportunities you've uh, given to me here on the show. Now I had the time <laughs> of my life. No, I never felt this way before. Dan, we'll just let him yes, do what he wants at this point. It's the truth. I'll just take out a lighter and start swearing. And I owe it all to you. Uh, no, I I appreciate that, guys. And, and it really has been just a joy to do this show and, and be involved with uh, this uh, Star Trek literary universe and, and the books and the comics and digging into them and having just so much fun talking through them and laughing about, uh, you know, gold key comics and, and just ridiculous things. And it, it's fun, you know, and I, I'm so glad that people have enjoyed it and wanted to keep listening. And, and definitely they all need to keep listening uh, because uh, I know this show is going to continue to be awesome and I'm excited to see where you guys take the show. And so uh, thank you so much for listening to us. So we, we really do appreciate it. Uh, we've got amazing associate producers here on the show through Patreon that help make sure the show keeps coming to you each and every week. Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatulla, Bruce Gibson, and Norman Lau. Really thank you all for your support of the network. Now, this is really important, guys. And um, if you kind of skip over this every week, don't because, you know, we're going into 2017 and this is a huge deal for us. There's absolutely no way this programming comes to you each and every week through all that we do for Trek FM without your support. The network is just too big for that. It's it's too expensive. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can support the network. Every little bit helps. Uh, just make sure that each and every week you can continue to get literary treks and every other show we do here in the network. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. And a huge thank you to all of you who tirelessly support us each and every month. It means the world to us. Uh, we love doing this for you, and we appreciate the fact that you love it enough to be here with us in that kind of support. Now, Dan, uh, when you're not trying to find a way off the worst Orion-run ship ever, where can we find you? Oh, it's so brutal because they've cranked the gravity up to 11. It's awful. <laughs> well, that's why your face is sagging. Oh, man, it's ridiculous. But uh, when, I'm, when I can finally crawl my way over to a computer terminal, you can find me tweeting on uh, Twitter, which is generally where you tweet, I guess, at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions, on youtube.com slash Productions, and on my website, treklit.com, which I am really trying to get in the habit of updating regularly again. And Bruce, when you're not snapping Lieutenant Stiles' riding stick over your knee in a fit of anger, but he deserves it, where can we find you? Well, you can find me in the engine room, of course. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Admiral underscore Rex. Admiral, that little line, the underscore Rex. And, uh... Wow, and you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast lately because it's all about Rogue One this these next couple weeks, and uh, we'll be talking up a storm on that. So check that out, and uh, of course you'll find me here, and you know I hang out in the Babel Conference. So, and Matt, when you're not floating through space with wasps all over you, and you're looking to eat planets and ships, where can people find you? Well, I gotta tell you. Uh... That executor was delicious. Just 
Mm, so good. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network uh, when, hopefully, Chris uh, is able to return. Uh, you can find all of the shows for The Orb that we've done so far, and we hope to be back with you as soon as possible. I do the General Geek Show here, which I just I love doing, talking about all things geeky that aren't Star Trek-related on the 602 Club. It's so much fun, and of course... We have Star Wars The 602 Club Collection, which just collects all the Star Wars episodes. And, of course, we're wrapping up this year with Rogue One, so definitely check that out. You're going to love it. And one of my favorite things is doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills, where we just pick a fun new Star Wars topic each week and just riff with each other, just keep going down the rabbit holes together. It's, it's just a real joy. So check that out at thenerdparty.com or, of course, on iTunes. Well, after all these episodes, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that, light reading? To each his own, number one.